You're listening to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, writer, advocate, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. All right, let's dive in. So this is episode 56, where I'll be in conversation with Wayne Sutton, who is my husband, also my co-founder at Change Catalyst, who's a great ally himself and also my best friend. He's also the founder of the Icon Project, which is focused on wellness and leadership development for Black and Brown men in tech. Today, we're going to have an honest conversation about mental health, our own interracial marriage, some motorcycle riding in there. And of course, we'll talk about allyship as well. And then Wayne is about to embark on a solo cross-country motorcycle ride to raise awareness for mental health and to raise funds for the Icon Project Fund. So we'll talk about that too. So hi, Wayne. Hey, Melinda. <laughs> Literally right, right around the corner. <laughs> He's right there. <laughs> yes, this is going to be fun. So first, describing ourselves for anybody who's blind or who's listening to the podcast. So Melinda, I'm, uh, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a white woman with long red hair, black and white glasses, and I'm wearing a turquoise sleeveless shirt. Wayne Sutton, black pecan brown man, black brown eyes, with glasses, black t-shirt, bald head. Awesome. So Wayne. We always start with telling your story, and I think it's it'd be great for people to learn more about you, where you grew up, and how you came to do the work that you do, and really focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also mental health. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's great that you're on episode 56. It's been awesome to see you do shows uh, throughout the last year and a half during the pandemic, and also congrats again on the book that I have nicely displayed right in the background. So someone else said congrats on the book, too. So... Yeah, well, the story, I'm trying to see what version to give, short version, long version, medium version, but here we go. I used to start off saying I'm a geek, nerd, introvert, and I developed those skills unconsciously as I grew up in um, North Carolina, a small town called Chichi, which in year 2000 had a population of 200. And it's close to town population, about 50,000, I think. And, you know, growing up, I was into art. You know, I used to draw, um, used to paint. Um, didn't uh, got computers. My mom used to work for HUD, had a furlough, brought her computer home, continued to work, could have worked and be and be done back with Windows 3.1. I just gravitated towards it. And then my, I used to work with my father um, on working on go-karts and engines, things like that. So I was used to tinker. So at the intersection of all that growing up, art, computers, engine, racing. I eventually got into computer graphic design at a trading school right out of high school, which is equivalent to a cold school. And then from there, got into IT. I uh, spent four years at a newspaper, first computer graphic design in IT. So that was it really, you know, my, my, my foray to like, okay, computers getting that whole world infrastructure, IT. And uh, kind of so my geek nerd cred, also my age, I used to go to people's houses to um, help them get dial-up internet service. So that's showing my age there. But that's what I used to do. Um, and so I was like part of the internet 1.0, like helping people out and help create community and with forums and that, you know, those ways back then. Eventually moved to Raleigh State Capitol, 
uh, what I teach more and just, you know, fell in love with the internet, saw how it was connecting people, connecting humans with 1.0, web 2.0 movement, and just was following everything that was happening in Silicon Valley, right? And then, like, people just called research charting apart, Raleigh, Durham, and uh, area, Silicon Valley East. So I used to be jealous of everything that was happening in Silicon Valley, and I used to try to replicate that in North Carolina, whether it was, whether it was tweet ups, whether it was conferences. I did the very first social media conference at a historically black college, North Carolina Central University, back maybe in 2009, right? So, so I was doing that back then. And I also won the very first thousand Twitter users in 2000s when they started talking six. So all this time, you know, I'm in the tech, I'm in it, you know, IT, I'm in, in, in it, you know, using the internet and having people get online and early adopt social media. And in North Carolina, I will be the only black person or maybe one or two. I will host conferences, tweet ups, having two or 300 people out and maybe five people be black, be people of color, right? So I have these and you combine that with oppression and racism in the South, it got heavy real quick. And then the startup movement after Web 2.0 started happened, the startup movement kicked in again in, in, in Raleigh. And I co-founded a startup with a colleague who, who ironically moved from Silicon Valley to North Carolina. And we co-founded a, a location-based app called Trout. It was like, well, like Foursquare Swarm. And uh, we tried to raise some angel and then just, you know, we couldn't do it. Eventually, during that time frame, someone there, I joined a newspaper as well, a television station, and did some early blogging and so forth. So eventually, I'm at a television station. Then I also joined, I had a startup, get laid off from the television station because they were early uh, to social and nobody was believing in social media was going to be a thing back then. And then I'll go back full time my startup. I launch a co working space that doesn't do well, but I'm an entrepreneur. I'm trying to do all these things. And then the data come out from CB Insights that only 1% of entrepreneurs who raise venture capital are Black and Latino. And that data was skewed because it's 2011. And here I am now being an entrepreneur, doing my own thing, you know, you know, in North Carolina, have my racist experience, have people come to me, you know, ask me to get them drinks at my own events that I was hosting because I was the only Black person, a few Black person there. I had people, you know, just say some rude stuff to me, right? You know, you know just things like that. And when that data came out in 2011, I'm like, I want to change that data. I want to change the number of unrepresented people in venture capital and, and eventually unrepresented people in tech. And so I partnered with some colleagues and we decided to create an incubator accelerator and moved to Silicon Valley in 2011. And we got featured in a CNN documentary by Sodell O'Brien called Silicon Valley New Promised Land. And it was a Black in America show. So eventually 2012, I moved to San Francisco and quickly realized the tech industry was not ready to work on uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. What you say diversity was a bad word. Like, and at the time we were trying to like bring awareness to the lack of black people, black and brown people in tech. Everybody was talking about tech is a meritocracy. How dare you come out here trying to change things? And that is a level playing field. And, you know, this was 2011 and then I moved in 2012 in San Francisco and just realized, you know, like I hit, I hit a rock bottom spot in 2012 because I realized that the tech industry wasn't ready. wasn't ready to talk about diversity and inclusion. It was just hard you know it was like it's like blacklisting yourself yeah so then from there so it was from 2012 to 2014 you kept kept working on startups right yeah yeah so eventually 2012 you know i leave the accelerator incubator that i co-founded 
and I joined a startup that was too early. It was, it was like a, a new version of Eventbrite. Kind of was everybody launching now, but back then, Raising My Angel didn't do well. We closed that. Um, then I worked with some friends, do some food tech hackathons. Then I realized my passion was still around helping unrepresented founders. And so I, I tried to raise a venture fund in 2013. Failed at that. I learned a lot. And then also, uh, I did, you know, start, create a nonprofit called Build Up and you know, we did a fellows program. We did a pre-accelerator. We helped five out of six companies either raise a million dollars or go into other incubators and accelerators, which was the goal. But also in 2012, I hit, you know, I hit rock bottom. I went through a serious episode of depression. I was told not to write about it, not to share. I was a heavy blogger. I didn't talk about it. I used to blog a lot. I was told not to write about depression, don't share what I'm going through, don't write about imposter syndrome. And I was hurting. And I was in therapy every week and from 2012 mm. to 2013. And nobody knew. It was like, don't talk about it. My coaches, my mentors, my friends are about like, don't share. You know, you, you get even more blacklisted because you used to talk about diversity. So I kept that quiet for a while. And then in 2014, two things happened that changed my life. One, I met Melinda um, in February 8, 2014. And two, the tech industry released their diversity numbers. And I knew they was working on it. And we, I was in, you know, people who started reaching out was like, oh, who was that? Who's that black guy talking about diversity back then? It was in that seating document. So people started contacting me for quotes and articles. And then we started going to these roundtables and then tech companies released the diversity numbers. And then everybody had data because mm-hmm. before I was saying tech is a meritocracy. And that was talking about, entrepreneurship, VC, much less the workforce. We knew there wasn't a lot of black people or underrepresented people in tech. We knew the number was low, but the tech industry was like, we need data. So in 2014, we released the numbers and it was bad. And it was really worse than what people thought it was going to be from the major tech companies. And that changed everything. And then we started Change Callus and Tech Inclusion Callus. Yeah. So we've been working on tech inclusion, really, really driving diversity, equity, inclusion in the tech industry through our tech inclusion events and also through training and, and consulting and coaching. And, and then, you know, we did our, the first icon summit in the fall of 2019 to really focus on mental health and professional development for black and brown men. And can you talk about why that shift and why focus on mental health? Throughout the years, the shift happened because there was moments where I was hurting. And it was hurting, let's say like hurting emotionally, right? You know, you know our marriage is fine, you know, good and stuff, but it's like the things of the world, right? It's like it's like hurting emotionally because you want to change. In the tech industry, you hurt emotionally because of life. You know, I do have a 10-year-old son that when I went through that rock bottom time, I left, he's in North Carolina with his mom, hurting because I miss him. Hurting because the state of the tech industry is not as diverse and inclusive as likely to be hurt because I knew I wasn't alone that was hurt, right? And I knew that other, you know, people, particularly black and brown men, were experiencing shame of being vulnerable uh, or didn't know how to be vulnerable or or were hurting also but didn't have a community. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, you know, I partnered with some other colleagues and we created a SAP group and it now has a thousand black and brown men in there. And, you know, we would share some of our, our stories. And then when I would talk with other, you know, black and brown men in tech and, and have some very close friends, you hear their stories. I knew that I wanted to, like, just like we did with Tech Inclusion, was focus on solutions, was to focus on, you know, like, also community. I wanted to create an experience that would help provide a safe space for people who look like me, could learn about vulnerability, who could 
have a shame-free experience, could talk about wellness, mental health, emotional intelligence, physical health, and learn with, with like-minded colleagues in an environment for growth where they haven't necessarily experienced before, you know, a little bit different. And and that was one of the reasons why that we, you know, the Shift from the Icon Project. You know, I in 2019 when we first did it, I was afraid myself to talk about mental health still. Even though I wrote some articles about it, I didn't want to call folks around, around mental health because there's still this shame around talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so we did the summit in 2019 in New York at Instagram headquarters. We had 300 plus black and brown men there, about 30 speakers. We had the icon, Dapper Dan there, the keynote, everybody from Anthony was, was there. We had uh, John Henry was there, was speaking. Uh, you know, a lot of great colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. you know black and brown men sharing stories from their first time meeting their fathers to raising capital to like being engineering leaders to designers. And it was one of the most proudest events that I've ever done in my life. And I, we've done over hundreds of events. You know, it was the proudest event because it was a, a vulnerable space for black and brown men in 2019 before we knew the world was going to change. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first time we even had a, a panel at Tech Inclusion with all Black men on the panel. That was a really powerful time, too. That just doesn't happen. Didn't happen then. It, it happens a little bit more now, but it was powerful for Black men in the audience and also for anybody in the audience to see that. So I've talked about this subject some. If, if anybody wants to go back and listen to episode 25 with Dr. Kevin Simon, we talked about understanding the effects of racism on Black boys and men. Great episode. Uh, we went deep in that episode and also with Dr. Angel Costa in episode 14, some as well. One of the privileges of being in an interracial relationship is that uh, Wayne and I share a lot. I get to learn a lot about his experiences as a Black man. And and one of those, I think, is really important to touch on. We'll, we'll circle back on our, our marriage a little bit more later. But what I learned is the incredible stigma in the Black community around uh, mental health, specifically Black men. You, you kind of grace the service a little bit, but what is that? What is, what's going on? Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't want, I'm, so speaking like this is how it is for every Black person, or this is how yeah, it is yeah, for the yeah. entire Black community. You know, it was talking about the Mandigo, right? We're talking about being Mandigo, right? Like, like that's what people want. That's what people want, like a strong black man, right? That's the stereotype of the bias. We talk about that in a black community. We talk about, you know, you 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 know, whether it's going to work, you put you deal with it, right? There's no complaint. You just deal with it, or you or you or you weak if you cry, or you mother your mother's boy, you know, things like that, mm. or you know, you soft, right? These are all things, you know, we we all heard, like I heard growing up. You know, like, you know, I stereotype some biases towards, you know, me as a black man. Um, and then there's the thing, the fact that because mm-hmm. of the oppression in this country in particular, there's reasons also why it's saying that you need to be hard. You need to be strong. You need to be always strong. You need to always be tough. You need to never let your guard down because of oppression or racism. Because if you've drawn about some aspect, people can take advantage of it or or be physically harmful to you. And so so you combine all of that oppression, stereotype, biases, what's happening, music, TV, the, the shame that comes with any type of person who's not strong all the time, black man is strong all the time. For me, it's when you say that, okay, you struggle with mental health or you deal with depression, it's like something's wrong, right? Um, it's like a weakness. That's some of the biases, stereotypes some people have when it's like you say, oh, mental health or... Often what happens 
and we talk about this one though with with racism and biases in general, that it's not me, it's them. Because when you can say mental health, what happens with the other person is their relationship with what, what mental health means and comes to their mind if they're not aware of the broad range of what saying mental health means, right? When you say mental health for some people, it could mean someone with a physical mental health, you know, that you see on the outside, or it could mean someone that, you know, we know movies betray a lot of people mental health within the psych ward, you know, with the, with the you know, vest on. And that's what images come to their mind. So that's their own biases projecting on you. So, so you combine all that with being a black person, being a black man, and you say you got mental health and, and you know, struggles in the community. And, and people, it's like, something's wrong with you, just go get help. And you add, mm-hmm. religion plays a role in it also. It's like, you know, well, just go pray about it or seek a higher power or things like that. And for some, that can help. But often there there could be a mental, physical, neurological, I think it's in the right yeah. Yeah. Uh, situation in your brain where you, you need someone to talk to or other resources. And in the Black community, that hasn't been a normalized thing to communicate and talk about. It's being shamed upon. So that's that's some, some of the things that you're talking about. You know, we were watching Sex Education last night and the Black gay man, Eric, thank you. He uh, was a victim of a hate crime, came home. His dad, the first thing he said was, well, if you're going to live that lifestyle, you got to toughen up. We see it in the stories all the time. It's kind of reinforced. And then I will also say that generational trauma, intergenerational trauma, I think is um, is a part of that too. And 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 the kind of coping that can happen. Michael Thomas also talked about this a little bit and and how you have to break that cycle in order to really heal from the trauma. And it, it does take courage to kind of break out of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think about also for me, it's like, I'm more self-aware now of my relationship and lack thereof with my father. We don't talk all the time. We don't text all the time, you know, but I know he's there, you know, and and he raised me, you know, him and my mom did the best job they could, but we didn't communicate our feelings growing up. Our, our love language was quality time. It was like, you know, working mm-hmm. on go-karts, his love language was like, you know, were teaching me his best ability how to play basketball as a kid or or building engines together, or taking transmissions out or helping farm or building a go-kart track for. He did those things for me because he loved. But it wasn't a communicate, I love you or hug or how am I feeling type relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's how I am. Even though I do love those things I you know as well, but I my brain needs those need that communication. And, you know, he's two generations away from slavery, right? And we're 11 brothers and sisters. And so uh, he did the best he could. And so I inherently have some generational trauma from his experience, from growing up Jim Crow and that era, pre-Jim Crow era, and the oppression living in the South as a Black man. Mm-hmm. But, and so I know with Marika, you know, my son, he's on the East Coast, and you know, we, you know, I talk to him, ask him how he's feeling. So it's okay to share your feelings. And we didn't have that type of relationship growing up. What would you say to yourself 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the version of yourself? Because there's a lot of men out there now who are experiencing that same feeling of 
maybe feeling shame uh, around seeking therapy or feeling like something is wrong with them when they experience depression or anxiety, what would you say to them? Yeah, good question. And I'm working on some talks so I'm going to tell for some companies and all that. So some of that is not coming up. Because <laughs> like, what I go back to normally is asking myself why, mm. right? So 10 years ago, I'm coming up on making the decision. No, I'm actually in Mountain View right now, 10 years ago. And I'm working on Accelerator. And I'm dealing with a lot of shit. I'm not sure if we cuss on the show, but I, and I'm depressed. I'm going through a, a divorce my son is one. Mm-hmm. I'm at a, a new company that a co-founder that I'm not. I'm about to be cut out of, and I have TV crew following me around. That's going to be displayed on a TV show around the world, and I'm just trying to get by mentally. So, two years ago, I asked myself, why am I doing this? Why am I sad? Um, and what am I going to do about it? And you know, because the why is, I think, you know, it's like the why helps you get present in the moment, like what's going on, like ask yourself like why. And there's also questions, your choice, your thinking, you know, are you in a good state of mind? Like, why is this happening? Helps you take responsibility of like, well, what am I in control of? What am I not in control? It goes to what can I do about it? What can I change? What is in my power? If I can't change it now, how can I make a plan to change in the future? And then how can I set myself up for success? But also I would try to like, answer the question like with the why i also ask the question am i okay and i kind of always go back to that even today like am i okay am i okay mentally am i okay physically you know do i need help so i would ask myself that you know 10 years ago today and then ask the question who who do i need to share with who i need to talk to who i need to ask was asked for help who i need to talk to for help who I need to share with because as humans, you know, my therapist, you know, helped me understand like, you know, as humans, we supposed to be part of communities and we're not meant to hold things in. Right. And so who do I need to share mm. with what's happening in my life? Mm. So I would ask those questions 10 years ago. How can allies better show up in those situations? How can allies show up for you now, but also back then? Yeah. Looking back, I had an ally and I didn't know he was an ally. I wouldn't call him an ally, but he was an ally. I had a couple, but mm. this one particular was an ally to me. And uh, and this is something that, you know, you know, you, know, you wrote a book on allies. So, something you know, we talk about all the time. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like ally can be anyone, right? Mm-hmm. And so an ally for me, you know, my assumption, my own bias is that ally, when I, when I think of an ally, people could think that, oh, it has to be someone who doesn't look like me. But actually, in this case, 10 years ago, our ally was Hank Williams. He's no longer with us, you know, rest in peace. But he's a black man in tech that did it, you know, raised $40 million before it was cool and, and all that. And now he was my ally in that situation, giving me advice and mentoring me and asking me, am I okay? Right. And so he was my ally back, back then. But allies can show up for people who we don't know are struggling with mental health or just you want to just check in on people, you know. Uh, they could just be having a bad day. So it's literally just asking, like, how are you really doing? Is there anything I can do to help? Is there anyone I can connect you with? Do you need a hug? Well, before COVID, <laughs> but do you need a hug? Mask on a mask on, but do you need a hug, right? Uh, do I need to call someone for you? No. How can I advocate on your behalf? Like, it's simple. It's like the D not work we, took, you know, we did over the years. It's not that hard to be a good human sometimes. Just got to do it. Yeah. And so, but that comes with 
a lot of self-awareness of your own self and then trying to make a good assumption with empathy, like you said, for others. And I think it's also challenging our biases. You know, we all are shaped by the media and how Black men are portrayed, Black and brown men are portrayed. So we all have to challenge those biases that we might learn in our, inside our heads to get over those, move past those and, and challenge them uh, as well when we see them. So, okay, I'm going to switch subjects to motorcycle riding. How does this relate to mental health? Why don't, why don't you say what you're going to do first? Like, talk about the cross-country trip. So leaving next week to go on a solo cross-country trip and back um, on a motorcycle to North Carolina uh, to see my son and family and then ride back. And so ride to raise awareness for mental health for the Icon Project and Icon Therapy Fund and also for my own mental health. Um, there's some places I want to go. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, so I want to go through there because it's not too cold. But just also want to take this time to reflect and and share, you know, the journey and and, and advocate for mental health. So t- talk a little bit more about how mental health intersects with motorcycle riding. You know the answer because <laughs> you ride too. <laughs> mm, I do know the answer very intimately, and I feel it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think about it, it just gives me joy, right? Just perk up a smile while I'm motorcycle riding. Hopefully my body, you know, hangs in there to continue to do it. But with everything I've had to endure as a human and we have endured as a human as the past year and a half during this pandemic, you know, I'm an introvert. I've learned that I struggle with ADHD. Um, I'm hypersensitive. Excuse me, this could be triggering for, for, for anyone Paul don't deal with dyslexia so I, I, I deal with a lot mentally it's just who I am and I'm always thinking it's hard to turn off like I'm, my brain is always thinking trying to solve a problem and when you get on a motorcycle you have to focus so much and and it's freeing and you, you your mind is freeing from all the distractions from all the wildness in the world from all the you know things that you wish you could change but you can't the pain you experience as a kid or as an adult or walking down the street sometimes when someone does something inappropriate to you, uh, some good or bad image you've seen that may up you set, or you're dealing with your own things you need to fix, pride, jealousy. And when you're on a motorcycle and you ride and you're going to see the sunset or you ride through the desert and you see the mountains or you ride through over the Golden Gate Bridge, you're like, never in my life as a child, I would have thought that I would be living in San Francisco, married to Melinda, riding over a motorcycle, over a Golden Gate Bridge with a headset talking to each other, right? Never in my life I would have thought that would have happened. And so motorcycle riding is just this mental freedom. And and it's just, you have to be in the moment to live and survive. And it's a sense of peace that joy gives me. Mm, yeah, I feel that. I feel that. And actually, I would say that it's, it's brought us closer together some too, you know, talking into, literally talking into each other's ears because we have headsets for hours and hours as we go on these motorcycle rides and in through peaceful, beautiful, I mean, we're so lucky to be in this Bay Area with so many beautiful places to, to go visit the coast, the, the, the vineyard, the mountains. I, we have just this amazing area to explore and we do it together. And sometimes we'll spend a whole day together uh, over the weekend to Let's talk about interracial marriage. We get asked about this a lot, and and I think people make assumptions a lot too. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that as well. And and I will say that you know when we first started dating, we did not announce it. And I think 
it was you more than me that was a little bit resistant to that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I was nervous as hell. <laughs> I mean, I was like, like, like I grew up in the South, right? I mentioned that number four in North Carolina. And so, you know, I'm very aware of like the, the, the bias and stereotype of, of interracial marriage, you know, you know, I've heard, I heard the saying growing up in high school, like, don't bring, don't bring a non-black person girl home, right? You know, I heard, you know, you know, I heard that, and we've seen that on TV. <laughs> you heard it in your community. I've heard it in my community. I'm not sure my parents actually told me that. They were a little. I would say it was. They were a little skeptical. Every family was a little skeptical first. Yeah. Love that. I I know my parents. I said, don't bring that girl here. But I'm not sure if it was related to race. So it could be just a different situation. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. <laughs> um, keep it real. Uh, but um, so we heard a stereotype from like, like interracial couples and so forth and, and how it could be you know, looked down on in the community, especially black men, white women. And you know, like like Melinda and I, you know, are both on our second marriage. And I have never dated a white woman before, you know, like never. And so I went through a separation one year, a divorce, and then I moved to San Francisco 2012. And then, you know, I had a relationship, you know, one time, you know, after that, and I was pretty much not dating anyone for about a whole year. You know, I was working on my mental health therapy, my, you know, getting in shape. Then I met Melinda in 2014, and then we started dating, and it was like, you know, once you go to Facebook, it was, you know, this pre well, Instagram was on, but once you put it on Facebook, it's real, right? And so put it on Facebook is a photo of us and we have that picture on a, on a bookshelf and, <laughs> and I was nervous and she was like, okay, okay, okay. He was so nervous. And it was so fortunate because <laughs> like, you know, I'm aware of stereotypes, right? But also aware of stereotypes goes both ways, yeah. right? There's a lot of other interracial couples that it's okay, right? I'm not going to say anything, but it's okay. But, you know, I, I'm aware of it and it sucks, you know, I, like, mm -hmm. I know where I was at mentally when we met. I wanted a good human. I wanted to fall in love with a good human who had empathy, and I didn't care what color they looked like, you know. Melinda, Melinda happened to show up at a, we said, a coffee shop, and we met, fell in love, and the rest is history. And that really should be all that matters. It should, it should. And for those of you all who are not in interracial relation, interracial relationships, that it, it comes with a lot of it. Um, and we've had some really amazing conversations and I've learned so much. Um, and uh, speaking of allyship, I definitely learned how to be a better ally because of our relationship. And it can be really hard. I mean, people assume that we want separate checks People assume that we're not together or what, like you get on a subway and they'll just divide you. They'll go in between you. There's just like things and a lot of little ways that you can feel it. I mean, I remember when we, when we first went to Paris, I think the second year that we were dating, we were sitting in a restaurant a few days in and, and I, I said, you know, something is different. It feels different here. It doesn't, we don't have, there isn't that like little bit of friction here like there is in the US. And of course, we're in the West Coast. It's it's different, more to more friction in the South than, than in the West Coast, but it's still here. It's still palpable. And I didn't really, we didn't really realize it until we left and went somewhere where it wasn't so much. So. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you wanna say anything more? Okay. Okay, we have a bunch of questions. We have a bunch of questions. I wanna jump to questions. 
So Anthony asks, Anthony Ware asks, um, what do you think it will take to make more than incremental change in terms of the relationship of mental health and mental illness in Black men? Great question. Ooh. Mm. No, I'm not mm. advocating on any rapper who they are, what they've done, but Meek Mill did a tweet a couple, a couple months ago. He was like, how can we make mental health cool in the Black community? And I, and I agree with that, that question. And I believe that's the case. And I think it's happening something. But like, to me, that's, that's it. Like, we need everyone to talk about mental health. And I think that's how we move it from the community. That remove the stigma from talking about it. We don't need just rappers. We don't need athletes. Like we had DeMar DeRozan in the NBA, one of the first people to talk about it. Then Kevin Love came, you know. We need athletes, we need the rappers, but we also need other community leaders. We need religious leaders talking about mental health, right? You know, Anthony, where you continue doing the work you're doing around, uh, around mental wellness, right? You know, um, people in tech, it needs to be also something that in the workforce more advocated for among managers and executives, right? Because we always experience burnout. When I was talking about burnout last night, right? And um, I don't get how we have all these smart people in tech. And when I came out here in 2012, the big movement was mindfulness and wellness, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole thing about mindfulness and wellness was about being able to like perform and be productive at work. So if we want the best people to do a great job, you should ask your teammates, your employees, how are they doing mentally? In a legal way, you know, of course. So they can show up and be a good human to work with other people and be productive. So I think all those things, I think what, what was what it takes to like, to remove this stigma in the black community and every, in, uh, in all communities around mental health. We have to make it cool. We have to make it where it's like, it's okay to ask and it's okay to take your time and continue to provide mm -hmm. resources. But I will say that every place has its own issues around race. Nobody's got it all figured out. Um, and there are varying degrees, what I have experienced um, in our, in, you know, it, just in terms of our interracial, you know, we uh, go to the South, we have one experience. South of the US, we have one experience. We go to Australia, we have another experience. We, we go to the West, uh, Northwest, um, we have a different experience and go to London or Paris and different as well. And, and you know, there are different histories in each of those regions that, that play a role in how people see each other, how people interact with each other. Yeah, I, I, was, I would say just looking back, like, and think about, you know, think about America is like, I am working on my own empathy towards towards people and locations, and, and, and I am biased towards my with my own negative experience. Like, you know, I grew up in the South. I had a lot of negative experience. I want to have negative experience. I want to have grace. I want to have empathy. I want to have. I want to forgive. Uh, but it's hard. Um, you know, even with parents or in laws, like it's hard. But like, you know, something I had to learn with my own parents is like I had to work on giving them grace and forgive them because I know that they are. Most of my young life, they did the best they could with what education and experience they had. And think about my parents and you know, a lot of parents. They're pre-internet generation. So um, a lot of them doing the best they could with a guy. But I do question, like, one underlying line that I heard growing up throughout the world, and I kind of wondered what the hell happened to it. And it was a saying of treat people like you want to be treated. It was a basic saying. And like, what happened to that? 
with fighting against racism or exclusion. What happened? So that's all. Okay, we have one more question I think we can get to here from Larissa. Um, have you found good supportive spaces for neurodivergent people who are also Black or BIPOC folks? Well, one of my family is looking for this. She's a woman or I'd send her the ICON project. As a white Jewish autistic woman, I've been searching but have not found it. Um, so maybe, you know, if you know any for, for Black women, Wayne, and, and then I can answer well, the... It's a community in New York. I can find it. While you're looking, I'll answer the other question, which is uh, not specifically for Black or BIPOC folks, but mydiversibility.com, run by an Asian woman. Uh, Tiffany Yu runs it. She's amazing. And she actually may know the answer to this. Uh, and Wayne says, look at healhouse.com, H-A-U-S.com, H-E-A-L-H-A-U-S.com. And, and what, what I'm seeing and is that different communities, different groups, uh, entrepreneurial groups, programs, whether it's for women in tech or people of color in tech, they are now adding mental health and wellness programs to educational experiences or their, their community experiences. And so, it, again, going back to the stigma, I feel like there's still a huge stigma around oh, we have a mental health program, mental wellness program, things of that nature. So I think you know, we're going to see more of the add-on versus a sole program around mental health and mental wellness. Where can people follow your ride and learn more about the ICON Project? Allies support the ICON Project? For now, you can go to the, the iconproject.org um, and soon there will be a link called the ICON Ride. And um, when that's there, you can follow the ride in real time, see where I'm at via GPS tracker. And we post uh, photos on Instagram and YouTube and Twitter. And so I'm nervous and I'm scared, but I'm also excited. It's going to be a fun adventure. Mm -hmm. I'm nervous and excited too for you to be out there all by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be meeting community along the way. And yeah. um, I'm excited for you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's if there's one question that I've been been receiving when I tell people about the ride relevant to this conversation is about like, are you scared because you're a black man in 2021 and we deal with all this things that's happening in this country last year um, and we know there's been situations and it's one thing, you know, like we've been seeing some of the shows we've been watching when it's like we can't let fear block us and that's kind of where I'm at, you know, like in life we deal with a lot of stuff we're doing this DNA work for so long and. I'm not gonna let fear hold me back, you know? And that's, but also like my therapist said, prepare for mayhem and hope for the best, plan for the worst. So that's why I have a GPS tracker. I have a set device and people can follow me in real time. So um, you wanna be a good ally. Of course you can donate support the cause and you also can check on me. So there you go. Wayne, thank you for this awesome discussion. Hey. I've enjoyed it. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and it sounds like everybody else has as well. Um, great questions. Thanks, everybody, for, for all of your questions. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
please share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media because we'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. Thank you to my team, Juliet Roy and Be Your Change Media, Renzo Santos, Araya April, Christina Swindlehurst-Chan, and Emily Moss. Appreciate your listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.